Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. At 2 Brute, please stab me in the back so I don't have to listen to another episode of this damn show. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am back. I am your host, Brian Levine. Uh, pre-recorded. Yeah, pre-recorded. It's Sunday night as I'm doing this because uh, I'm on. I'm already in Vegas while you're listening to this. And uh, hopefully my booth is all set up by now. Anyway, in uh, tonight's pre-recorded show, hey, we're going to go, uh, I'll recap my trip for you in pipe parts. Got a few interesting things in there that are pipe related. I am, uh, my guest tonight is Tom Looker, and Tom is a, uh, a, a, a devotee of the art of the pipe. He is a student of the sculptural shapes of the pipe. The uh, conversation that I had with him uh, went way longer than normal but almost long enough to split it up into two shows instead we're going to do one longer show than normal and then we'll have a uh, we'll have music mailbag and a rant all that coming up in tonight's uh ides of march episode of the pipes magazine radio show yeah the uh, the ides of march are upon us uh spring has sprung NASCAR's in full bloom. I mean, the weeds are in full bloom around here, and uh, and I'm a uh, traveling fool again. So again, I'm in Las Vegas right now for the Tobacco Plus Convenience Show. It is uh, primarily tobacco outlets, discount cigarette stores, convenience stores, uh, much more of what I call the mass market, not the OTC or over-the-counter pipe blends. And we do a bunch of those, so that's why I'm there. I'll be uh, heading back on Friday. It is a uh, close to the public. It's a trade-only show, so uh, and it wouldn't be much for us pipe guys really to go and see there anyway. But I will be having dinner at a couple of good restaurants while I'm there. Uh, more on food in uh, pipe parts in just a minute. All right, everybody. Hey, make sure that you are 18 years of age or older to uh, continue listening to this fine program. Uh, sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to the McBaron Tobacco Company, and here we go. What are you looking for in a pipe? Is it the quality of aged briar? Is it a certain shape or finish? Maybe it's the sound engineering that ensures an effortless, smooth draw with each and every puff. That's exactly the kind of pipe Savinelli has delivered for generations now. With such a variety of shapes, finishes, and sizes, it's easy to find something that fits your sensibility and style. Just this year, we've expanded our lineup to include the Bianca, the Lancelotto, the 2015 Collection, and the final installment in the Leonardo da Vinci line, the Vitruvio. For a bolder style, try our more colorful 2015 editions as well. The exotic cashmere, the sultry licoricea, and the striking archipelago red. So whatever you're looking for in a pipe, know there's a Savinelli waiting for you. Contact your local or online retailer to find your Savinelli today. We 
are back. All right, so I was in uh, Puerto Vallarta for the Tobacconist Association of America. It's a uh, group of 77 owners that represent about, um, about 175, 200 retail stores across the country. And at that was about 40 manufacturer suppliers, including us. Uh, mostly uh, cigar companies, but other uh, Lane Limited was there, and uh, a couple other uh, pipe and tobacco suppliers of smaller scale were there, including Arango Cigar, which imports uh, Nording pipes and and a handful of other tobaccos. Uh, the obviously the main emphasis, and this is the this is the shocking part of it for me, uh, the main emphasis is cigars. All right, 90, 92% of the revenue of these stores, on average, comes from cigars. Uh, a couple of things that I did notice, and this is where we as uh, pipe smokers in the United States, we need to make ourselves present in as many brick-and-mortar stores as possible because uh, when the uh, IPCPR head was having his discussions, the International Premium Cigar and Pipe Retailers Association, during that legislation talk, it was all about cigars, not one mention of pipes. Uh, the TAA itself is updating their logo and changing it and adding the year in where they used to have two crossed pipes. So again, pipes are becoming less and less important. Uh, but here's how the flow of the show goes. Uh, each evening there's a cocktail party with cigars sponsored by a supplier and then there's a dinner sponsored by another supplier and usually cigars are handed out uh and then there's an after hours party now uh let me just say this uh, the the event was held at the weston resort and spa in Puerto vallarta um the pool was beautiful the grounds were beautiful the beach was cute not exactly my favorite kind of a beach but it's a hey it's the pacific ocean so it was cute um, the Westin itself, kind of an old, tired place. Um, my room was directly above the lobby bar where the after-dinner after events were held, and I could hear everything and smell everything. Um, anyway, but, but if you want to go to some place, and maybe when there's not a big convention there, uh, highly suggest it very smoking-friendly. Uh, smoking in the room, smoking on the patio, smoking at a couple of the uh, at the outdoor bar areas. Very smoking-friendly. No complaints about that. Food, not the best I've had. The, I would suggest you have food in somewhere else while you're there. Anyway, um, so I got a chance to sample some, sample some new cigars out there. A uh, couple of them that stood out to me, the uh, Alec Bradley Prensado, great cigar, and I've now fallen in love with the Arturo Fuente Magnum R, uh, they call it the Vitola 47, great cigar for an everyday smoke. All right, there's my two recommendations from smoking a bunch of cigars during the week. Uh, during the entire time there, Saw two other pipe smokers besides me. Uh, Gary, the owner of the tobacco shop of Ridgewood, New Jersey, is a dedicated uh, cigar smoker. And uh, uh, Jeffrey from Racine and Laramie, also a very dedicated pipe smoker. Um, so again, yeah, a couple of shops that are very dedicated to pipes, including the Briar Patch in Sacramento, uh, Telford's up in uh, Marin County in Northern California. 
Uh, again, not, you know, pipes aren't completely forgotten. Pipes and tobaccos aren't completely forgotten, but the focus of these businesses is on, definitely on cigars. So we need to, as a group, uh, if you live in the Norfolk, Virginia area, get out to Emerson's and visit them. They have a good selection of pipes and pipe tobaccos. Uh, the interesting thing for me was at the the last day of the event is a um, is a mini trade show where six foot tables kind of looks like a pipe show. Each manufacturer gets a table and sets it up. And I know there was about seventy uh, about seventy seventy three owners in the room. Uh, we had nineteen of them actually stop by our table, so that'll give you an idea of how many of them were interested enough in pipe tobacco to come and stop by the table. We did do a fairly good job of getting M4 out. All right, uh, and on the way back, and this will uh, we'll hit this in the rant. <laughs> on the way back, I picked up a three-liter bottle of tequila in the airport. <laughs> the bottle's beautiful. The guy that worked in the airport said, uh, no, this is not for drinking. This is for margaritas. <laughs> it was about uh, $46 U.S. for three liters it's 13 inches high of liquor inside this 17-inch bottle. Anyway, it looks good sitting on the refrigerator right now. All right, in just a minute, a highly insightful um, dive into the deep end of pipes and pipe shapes and pipe collecting with Tom Looker. This is Internet Radio. Craftsmanship, history, tradition. These are the hallmarks of all quality products. From the finest wines bottled in France to the most highly engineered automobiles manufactured in Germany, Denmark has been the one country in the world where craftsmanship, history and tradition have for centuries created the finest pipe tobaccos in the world. Since 1887, the Halberg family have led the pipe tobacco industry through their ownership of Mac Baron Tobacco Company and they continue to create the most sought-after blends in the world today, just as they did over 100 years ago. In keeping with their long history of providing the world with the best tobacco on earth, Mac Barron is proud to announce their newest creation, Modern Virginia, as a loose-cut version and a flake version. Bright and dark, rich Virginia tobaccos have been combined with just a hint of burley for strength in this soft and smooth smoke with delicious fruit undertones. As the world leader in flake tobacco production, Mac Barron is sure that this blend will appeal to the true connoisseurs of traditional Virginia flake tobacco, as well as those who like their tobaccos on the sweeter side. Enjoy the culmination of centuries of experience by picking up a tin of modern Virginia from Mac Barron Tobacco Company. Available at fine tobacconists everywhere. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. And uh, this one, this, my guest tonight is Thomas Looker, or Tom as I've known you for, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 years or so. Um, this is going to be dangerous for me because Tom has a Peabody Award for a broadcast that he did on NPR and public radio and has been in uh, journalism and broadcasting for years and is also a pipe-smoking enthusiast and collector and curator of the Briar Gallery. So as I tread into the deep end of the pool... Uh, <laughs> Please welcome Tom Looker to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Well, it's fun to be here, Brian, I think. <laughs> uh, I'm a little nervous, so take it easy on me if you don't mind. Um, well, you know. 
All right, so tell everybody where did you uh, where did you grow up and when did you first become interested in pipes? Well, I uh, uh, grew up around New York City, uh, and uh, but I first uh, had anything to do with pipes when I was in uh, graduate school in in England at Cambridge, uh, and uh, I think before that, when I was in college, I. Uh, I occasionally would would try to to smoke cigarettes, you know, because that's one what one did during uh, all nighters. You remember? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you would, and, and so you know, it was part of the kind of uh, I'm up all night. I'll you know, puff, puff, puff. But I really didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I mean, I kept. I, I realized this is just burning my mouth, and I, why am I doing this? You know, so um, I, I, I never, I never really paid much attention to tobacco, qua tobacco, uh, my whole life. But when I was uh, a graduate a graduate student on the banks of the Cam in Cambridge, the notion of walking along smoking a pipe just seemed so British. And <laughs> there was one of these. You remember those? Stores that that sold pewter and tobacco, and it was the sort of really crusty leather chairs and whatnot. I mean, it was really, and this was you know in Cambridge, so it was quite quite a sense of tradition and whatnot. So I picked up a probably a kamoi or some some nonsensical something or other, and and, and started smoking from time to time. But again, I never really I didn't do it very much. It was it was more the the ambience, the atmosphere, the, the the gesture, the ritual was all kind of a, a neat thing. So from then on, uh, I every so often I would smoke a pipe, particularly when I was, or really only when I was writing, either writing scripts for the radio show or, or later on when I was teaching and writing articles and whatnot. Uh, part of the ritual of writing would be taking a break from when I couldn't think of the next word and then fiddling with my pipe and taking a few puffs and then going on. Uh, but again, it was, as we would say in the trade, it was an instrumental thing rather than a, it wasn't something that I really got into. Um, and uh, so it really wasn't until uh, around uh, around the year 2000 uh, that I started smoking again. And the trigger this time was that A, I had just broken up with a woman, and B, uh, <laughs> B, I noticed that I put on a lot of weight. And rather than eating popcorn at night, I said, "Well, maybe if I shove something else in my mouth." And so I looked at my old pipes and I said, "Oh, and, and my truce tobacco. Remember truce?" Yeah. Uh, that and t- to me, see the reason I smoked truce. I used to say when in the old days, I'd say I'd smoke truce because I didn't, you know, it was like smoking nothing. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't. Int- I was just interested in puffing and the whole ritual of it, but the actual taste just wasn't, you know. I. I anyways, it, it was mild to the point of nothingness, um, and uh, within about I don't know six months. Nine months, I, I had lost like five pounds or something like this. So it really worked. So <laughs> I got into it for that kind of health reason. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, uh, in the uh, in the early 2000s, um, 
I started, and it was the internet. I guess yeah, it must have been the internet. I started noticing these different pipes. There was something called let's see, what was it? Uh, something called a Dunhill (laughs) (laughs) that I had. And because when I was in, I'm teasing a little bit because when I I knew obviously knew them when I was in Cambridge, but I'd look at them and say, I can't remember what the numbers were, but it was like three times more expensive than a than a Kamoi or something like that. And I, who would why spend you know fifty dollars on a on a pipe? (laughs) (laughs) But on my return, I took a return trip to Cambridge in 2002, I guess it was. Just a, a quick visit and whatnot, and I went to uh, was it Har- maybe it was Harrods, and I bought my first Dunhill, uh, and I said, and I was amazed to find how much better it smoked than the old things that I had. <laughs> and so I started then. I so I started buying Dunhills, and the guys guys online got to know me, including Sykes at, at SmokingPipes.com. Uh, got to know me first as someone who was buying, because I thought to myself, well, you know, again, since I wasn't interested in fiddling around with tobaccos, I I just thought, well, this is sort of fun. Uh, it wasn't, you know, different shapes of Dunhills and different finishes, and I started reading reading all the wrong books. You know who. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, um, and so I was in the middle of that when I, I you know, I began. Then, then I started paying attention to what people were saying online, and and again, uh, I, I, um, I, I got to know Sykes before the Japanese stuff happened. But I was just anyway. I went from I, I as I was looking at looking up Dunhills or something. I happened to my eye happened to fall on with the two thousand two two thousand three. My eye fell on uh, this, this Japanese-style pipe, which looked very funny. And it was by some guy, Tokutomi. Yeah, so Tokutomi, yeah, okay. And uh, I looked at this, and I said, I, one of my, I was teaching at Amherst College at the time, and, and uh, I, I don't know, had long conversations with a guy. I was an American studies teacher. Long conversation with a, an art historian who was just, uh, who's, background was in Dutch Dutch and Flemish, but had just recently begun to pay attention to Japanese architecture and Japanese art and whatnot, and he had this whole, I got this whole rap from him about a certain Japanese aesthetic, which he, and he <laughs> gave me the name, because uh, I know ma, and I looked, well, I looked at this Tokutomi pipe, and I said, hmm, I think this is what Joel's been talking about, <laughs> and, and it's a pipe? Well, you know, so I, I, I picked it up, and I, I, uh, I showed it to Joel, and I said, is this what you were talking about? And he said, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, I had started, you know, holding the thing in my hand and looking at it, and I bought a number of his things, and I thought to myself, this is really interesting. Uh, You know, totally different shapes, a totally different experience holding the thing and looking at it and whatnot. And um, then that led me, and but... They were also very challenging. I mean, to the European eye, I mean, it was, what is he doing here? You know, why? What is that little bump? You know, and, <laughs> and what does that swirl mean? And why is he leaving this rough and so forth? And I slowly, as I began, so so Sykes and I began a kind of long distance discussion 
uh, I would I looked at a lot of the incoming Tokutomi pipes, and I would I would then we would then discuss them online, and I was discovering that as I was trying to understand what Toku was was doing, what what was in his imagination, and that had been by the way my main interest in as a teacher was to, about the the, uh, the power of the imagination and the importance of of uh, imagination and various things and 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 so here was a you know I said this guy has a vision that is very different from a European sense of these things and then the more I learned about toku the more I, I then I started to hear you know learn more I guess I'm making it a I guess I'd known about this before as well but but the notion that the, the Danish pipe stuff began to have a focus for me rather than being the sort of general knowledge floating around because Toku was was responding to uh, Sixten Everson and various Danish forms. And uh, so, and this was the, the fateful decision as far as my pocketbook was concerned, I said, wait a minute, if I'm really going to understand Toku stuff, I'm going to have to understand what he's responding to. You know what the Danish shapes, because you know, I I just have pretty literally gone from Dunhill to, to Tokutomi. It's possible there was a Teddy pipe in the middle of that, but I'm not sure. But so then I started to you know I would look at, but there's nothing like holding the damn thing in your hand when you're trying to understand the new what I was beginning to think of as an art form and. Uh, getting your responses to it and so forth. So I started to have to, you know, I began buying estates, and then before you knew it, I was, I, uh, about the same time, very short, yeah, very shortly after I started paying attention to toku pipes, I started uh, paying attention to, uh, to to teddy pipes. And uh, I, in our, in my discussions with Sykes, these written things, uh, that we'll publish someday. <laughs> <laughs> I began, you know, comparing what Teddy was doing and what Tokutomi was doing, and suddenly there was a whole, as I said before, we're developing a kind of language to talk about these things and understand Teddy better. I would then start paying attention to what Kent was doing as a kind of his interaction with Teddy and other people and, and, and the Ebersons and Bo and so forth. And there suddenly, the, you know, this story began emerging uh, about different uh, aesthetic ideas. Uh, I mean, I know that, you know, these are all just, as far as the guys are concerned, they're pipe makers, you know, and they're just making something to smoke. And Teddy's classic line about his pipes is, you know, well, why did you put that nice curve in there? I said, well, he'll either say, A, it was just more interesting to do, <laughs> and B, it was more difficult, so I did it that way. <laughs> but... But behind that, even though he wasn't always self-conscious about about uh, the you know the way the reason that his pipes were so attractive and interesting, uh, behind all that was what I began to feel what was in sort of a, a subconscious artistic sense that was just kind of dormant in there, and uh, which is one reason that his pipes always as as uh, different as they are from many others. Uh, is also a kind of a, a naturalist to them, a, 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 just a flow that, uh, <clears throat> because it's an intrinsic, intrinsic part of it. At the same time, I, I then met Toku at Tokutomi at, at um, through Sykes and Smokingpipes.com at my first Chicago show, 
I went there because Tokutomi was going to be there, and, and we met for the first time. And and as I got to know him, and then Teddy got to know Toku at at, at the same time, and I was showing Toku pipes to Teddy when I first met Teddy in Newark. And uh, then I was showing Teddy pipes to Toku, or you know, and suddenly there was this kind of kind of international cross-cultural discussion that evolved uh, meeting these guys, talking to them, uh, sharing pipes, showing pipes, and, and then seeing what happened. And, um, oh, by the way, just to finish that first thought, while, while uh, I, as I say, I discovered that Teddy was, was not self-conscious about what he was doing, Toku, on the other hand, was much more self-consciously artistically oriented. I don't think he would call himself an artist, but, you know, from the time that he was in, in school in um, in Tokyo, he was be, became interested in in art and, and carving and whatnot. And he took on a visit to Tokyo a few years ago. Um, he took me to the museum where he always used to visit and showed me his favorite sculptor. And uh, uh, Cohen... K-U hyphen O-N, I think is how he's spelled, uh, early 20th century. Uh, and Toku began talking about how beautiful his lines were and his forms and his shapes, the drapery around women, for example. And what was most interesting about this, this little interaction was that as Toku began describing to me what what we were looking at, he began moving his hands in a in a in a kind of wave like motion, and I real and you know to kind of show me the lines that he was seeing and and how beautiful they were, and I looked at his hands and I said I thought to myself this is exactly the way Toku will talk about his pipes. <laughs> yeah. He'll move his hand in the same way when he's talking about, or as he's looking at a um, at a piece of briar that he's carving. You will see, you know, sort of talking to himself or thinking to himself, and suddenly his hand will move in this little round gesture as, he, as he's tracing the line. And he was doing the same thing with with the comb sculpture. And then he said to me, uh, you know, when I first saw this particular uh, statue of, his, of a woman in her drapery, her clothing, he said, uh, I used to look at this and I'd say, boy, if I could could make something. That was even close to this these beautiful lines, I would be satisfied and uh, he didn't do it in, in sculpture, but he in fact was by the time he was became a uh, polished his art as a uh, as a pipe maker, he was in fact transferring that whatever that aesthetic was that he saw, whatever that sense of beauty that he saw, he had now transferred it to Briar so um as as I got more and more interested in in what I was learning from these people, I then you know, my first thought was that I was gonna I was gonna have to write about this. As having just stopped teaching at, at Amherst at about the same time, all this was in the early 2000s again. I was looking for something to do, and I had been in journalism and uh, written a book about NPR actually, and I was sort of looking for another writing project. And I thought to myself, this is quite a story. Uh, the not only the development of of the shape of pipes, which has been told by many pipe pipe smokers writing to each other, writing for each other, but I 
I saw this as a larger question of uh, Japanese aesthetic, uh, Danish aesthetic, uh, interacting. Uh, these Toku and Teddy and me, and actually Lars is just a teeny bit older. Uh, Bo was a, was a bit older than that, but but surely Teddy and Toku and I are 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 all the same age within a year of each other, so, and we're all sort of. Well, speaking generally, sort of ex-hippie types, alternative <laughs> people you know, in some way. People, so, people of pretty, the arts. Yeah, but also who grew up in the '60s, you know. Yeah. So I mean, so so Teddy still has. I never had shoulder-length hair, but Teddy still does, or at least long hair. And an early picture when Toku visited Sixth and Everson by taking the Trans-Siberian radio uh, radio Trans-Siberian railroad from Tokyo through Moscow to Copenhagen and then walked up to Sixth and Everson's door and knocked and said, hello, (laughs) or he he didn't speak much English, no Danish, and said, I want to be a pipe maker, (laughs) or words to that effect. Uh, And he arrived there with shoulder-length hair and carrying a guitar. (laughs) So So, uh, Toku now, like me has has gone back to shorter hair, but anyhow, so we all were sort of, um, and then actually I was talking, we was talking once with uh, Yeskanovich, and he's also around the same age and had the same same kinds of experiences and, and background and whatnot, but so you have, um, but uh, uh, while I was kind of set up to appreciate this. Uh, Teddy and Toku are actually pursuing a particular, uh, uh, well, a craft. Uh, They would all say, you know, pipe making is a craft. Toku just became really fascinated by the whole pipe making business and learned, considers himself a a, a, uh, a, uh, disciple and acolyte of, uh, well, put it the other way. He regards Eberson and Sixton as his mentor even though he only worked with him a couple of months, but that was enough to kind of put in his mind all kinds of, uh, you know, the Danish, uh, innovative post-war Danish sense of what a pipe ought to be. And uh, But immediately he got back to Japan, he starts doing his riff on this. And, um, and immediately, you know, partly self-conscious, partly consciously and, and, and partly not, he starts... Uh, uh, working with uh, uh, his aesthetic. Well, what's the difference between Japanese and, and Danish aesthetic? I, I, not being a student uh, and of art history, all I know about this is what I've learned through pipes. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so I take Teddy and Toku as representatives, some kind of representatives of different aesthetic traditions, uh, and. Um, What's fascinating is how uh, you know similarities and differences, and and how they influence each other and so forth. Uh, Teddy's pipes, ever since he's Teddy, has always been very creative and always been very been slightly at at least slightly different from from other pipe makers. Uh, and I always have found, you know, even when I first got got to know his stuff, I always found that there was something just a little more supple, a little more subtle, a little more uh, graceful in a certain way uh, 
than uh, the other guys' uh, pipes from from Denmark. Teddy always had a slightly different aesthetic uh, that, as as I have said, I mean, if you ask Teddy about it, said, you know, why did you put in that nice little curve in that uh, elephant's foot and not, not just do it straight? Why did you put that little curve in? And Teddy's answers, you, normal answers, will be one of two things. Either, well, it, it was just... This, more interesting <laughs> to do that. And B, which is even more kind of stolid in a way, that, well, it's more difficult. <laughs> and obviously, if it's more difficult, I'm going to do it, you know, to show that I can do it. Uh, so that is consciously what he, how he looks at this thing. He looks at it probably and tries to make it more interesting. But subconsciously, he's got this genuine artistic spirit uh, or just, and I don't even I'm making it too. He has a general aesthetic that is softer and and supple, and has a sense. I mean, for example, uh, in a in a in a with, a with a Teddy pipe, there's it's a it's, it is a single composition from the tip of his stem to the front of the pipe. The stem is not just tacked on. It's always part part of the whole flow of, of the piece. And your eye begins with the stem and then goes down and then comes back. Tokutomi is exactly the same thing. The stem, would, can, in his case, it'll be coming from different angles maybe and twisted around and so forth. But again, it's, it, it's the whole shape. And there are many, uh, but on the other hand, there are many, you know, wonderful Danish pipe makers whose, whose shapes are very, very pleasing and very pleasant. And the stems are just stuck on. <laughs> They're like this little thing sticking out from it, which you can sort of ignore. And um, now, Teddy didn't sit down and say, I'm going to make the stem part of my whole composition. You know, he just it just flowed from how he thinks about these things and how he did these things. And uh, to this day, you know, he as all pipe makers, he hates making his stems. It's <laughs> like the dullest <laughs> part. And his wife, Meta, will always say, you can always tell when Teddy's starting work on the stems because he'll come back in a bad mood. <laughs> and yet, while other pipe makers regard it as, as tedium and so just, you know, stick it on, Teddy can't just do it that way. You know, it's got to be bent a certain way in every curve and any shape. It's got to fit this. And even though, you know, he just knocks them off very quickly in a way, but he's still, that underlying sense of aesthetic is, is still always a part of it. And so it, it's as perfect as the rest of his pipe. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, how you uh, how you got interested in all this, and then uh, we'll go back into that radio thing for a little bit. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Meet Aaron, one of the most important people at SmokingPipes.com. In our shipping department, he's one of the cogs in the highly efficient wheel, if you will, that's responsible for making sure your order goes out right every time. Ain't that right, Aaron? I don't know all about that cog and the wheel stuff, but I do know at SmokingPipes.com, I take my work very seriously. Pulling tents of tobacco, weighing bulk tobacco, triple checking orders, and getting them out the door. Since it's so easy to order from SmokingPipes.com, you're keeping Aaron pretty darn busy. Look at him go, go, go. <laughs> in fact, it's been a challenge to get him to stop long enough to say hello. But Aaron doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why is that, Aaron? Because I don't just ship pipes. I smoke them. 
gotta run. <laughs> Just log on to smokingpipes.com or call us at 1-888-366-0345. We are quality. We are experts. We are smokingpipes.com. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and Tom, how did build me up to the, uh, you know, I'm interested in the radio part, and build me up to the Peabody Award. Oh, well, that's, a, that's sort of a, a whole other line. Um, when I came back from, from, from Cambridge, being unable to, for, for, uh, because of things, political events in East Africa made it impossible for me to continue. I was doing a, a PhD in African history, theoretically, and I was unable to travel over there during that period, so I wound up back in this country, and, and so rather than, um, and after spending a little time in American studies at Yale, I realized academia wasn't where I was um, at. I wanted to start writing immediately, so I, I moved up to Amherst, Massachusetts, and uh, started working at, at a couple of local newspapers, and somehow or other, God knows how, I, I started, I got connected with, with NPR. This is the late 70s. NPR had just started uh, National Hook Radio, and um, I had done a little bit of radio work in, in college at Amherst and um, uh, had some connections with uh, NBC News uh, and so had always sort of imagined that I, I might possibly do uh, TV, radio, TV work, even though I was mostly a writer. Um, and anyway, so I, I found NPR and, and discovered their whole approach to news and, and to long-form long doc documentary, as it's now called. Uh, and so slowly got... got uh, there was... A couple of years there, where, where I, you know, most of my income was from doing freelance stuff for NPR from from uh, New England, mostly options and education, an educational program. Eventually, they invited me down to. They offered me a, a job in in Washington, and I went down there for a, a few months and looked around, and then then decided that I'd rather uh, stay in New England and. Anyway, during this period, I started thinking about radio documentaries and learning about them. And the upshot was that in the uh, in the early '80s, I uh, started traveling traveling around New England on my own with a little tape recorder and recording the sounds and stories of New Englanders who were staying on the land and uh, what what rural New England life was all about. And in my mind, I, I had, I was, at, by this point, I had gotten thoroughly disgusted with television. Uh, this is even before Fox News, so I was impressed. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, I, I saw the handwriting on the wall about various things, and I said, you know, radio is, is the literate electronic medium. I wrote a couple of articles about this, and now I, I wanted to find out and demonstrate what potential radio had to be as vivid and even more uh, sensitive in a way than, than television, than pictures. And so I put together this uh, 13 half-hour programs called New England Almanac, 
which had a lot of sound, a lot of uh, interviews with people, and and um, which I was able to do all all by myself. This is you know, partly for economic reasons, but also partly because I wanted to demonstrate that, you know, what one could do with a microphone and a tape recorder and just a little bit of uh, of uh, production equipment. I used our local radio station up here. Uh, now, now you can do a podcast and just email okay. it out to people. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, that's, I... Uh, uh, I'm ambivalent about all this stuff because one of the things about New England, about New England Almanac, um, it was, you know, full-throated stereophonic sound. I mean, this was this was uh, the whole point of it was was uh, to um, demonstrate how, as I say, how, how vivid sounds could be, how they could draw people in who. You know, uh, the great problem with with uh, American media, which is, we're really suffering from now and finding the big ways, is attention span business. And people in commercial radio would criticize NPR for you know no one our people's attention span has shrunk. And uh, so then I, I discovered that you know if 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 you can only speak for for a minute, if you're only given given 30 seconds to report on something, there's a lot of things you won't be able to say. And so the the forum itself is it, shaping what what ideas people can have. Um, and um, so I was determined among the other things I wanted to do with this New England Almanac thing was to can we through an interesting program get people to listen to longer things than they normally would. And the answer was yes. I mean, I, I, it, public radio was not very well known back then, but I, the, when NPR picked it up and, and broadcast it around the country, I got wonderful mess, uh, letters from people all over the country, literally from from urban dwellers, from, from people in Chicago to people on the farm in, in Kansas. And they were all talking about how how drawn into this program they were and my my favorite comment of all came from a guy in Chicago who said he had really enjoyed the first program and was looking forward to the second one and then was was confused when he heard the second program on the radio and he cuz his memory was that he he must have seen it on television <laughs> <laughs> Because it had been so good, and then he realized, no, 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 you know, of course it had been on the radio, and that was the whole thing, so that demonstrated the, uh, and that was uh, what uh, uh, the basis of the Peabody Award was, that they, they hadn't heard this sort of thing before, and it, it really opened up all kinds of possibilities for radio. Now, the reason I wound up at, uh, teaching at Amherst and, and finally into pipes <laughs> was, was that New England Almanac came out the year before the big crisis at NPR when they discovered how little money they had, and, and suddenly they went to, in, in, for a few years, they went entirely the opposite direction from long-form stuff. And I was informed a year or two after the shows had been broadcast that if I had made these programs now, NPR wouldn't have been able to broadcast them because they were half-hour shows and they were no longer broadcasting shows that were that long. Um, which is to say that at, 
rather than starting a whole trend, which I'd, I'd hope this would influence other documentarians to go out and do much more interesting stuff than I did, uh, the timing was all off, and that was like the last of, of, of that kind of documentary for a long time. Now, now uh, things have shifted at NPR a bit, and, and it's not quite quite as barren as it used to be. But anyway, there was enough of a fallout that that uh, I then was invited to start teaching at Amherst as a as an expert in New England. All you have to do is get a you know do a good radio series, and suddenly you're an expert. <laughs> In New England, or, or do a yeah. podcast, and suddenly you're an expert in pipes and tobaccos. Exactly, it's the same thing. I mean, the influence of the media is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and as I say, it was. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that when I was writing scripts, not when I was editing tape, but when I was writing scripts <clears throat> for the radio show, I'm, I'm I'm sure I must have smoked a pipe a little bit. Certainly when in the early 90s, when I started doing a book, I was still teaching in Amherst, but I started doing a book about NPR. Uh, when I was writing that, the sound and the story no longer available. <laughs> when I was doing that, I, I know that, that part of the, the rhythm of, of writing would be to, to be to have a pipe going. So in addition to winning a Peabody Award, you won a couple others. One of them's the Ohio State Award. So does that mean that you got the whole state? <laughs> no. No, it turns out the uh, uh, Ohio State University give, gives out awards for uh, media stuff, and that, that it's, it's considered a, 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 you know, that that's one of the uh, national awards that's nice. And there's, I don't know if Columbia is still doing it, but there was an even more sort of narrower field from uh, Columbia University Armstrong, uh, the Armstrong Award. And this began as uh, Armstrong was an FM, a pioneer in FM radio. So these were originally, you know, going way back for FM radio programs and so forth. So, uh, but it was nice, it was nice to get that. That's kind of an unusual award as well. And Well, in addition to doing that, you're also a bit of an accomplished musician because I've seen you play guitar, and don't tell me you're not that good because I've seen you play because you played with Tokotomi sitting there one night at the Richmond show. Uh, did did music start when you were a, a, a young kid in the 60s? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in, in, a, in a very musical family. My, my father was a very fine pianist, uh, though a lawyer. And my brother is a very fine pianist, though an ex-shot psychiatrist. So, <laughs> and my nephew Charlie is a, is a, a terrific guitarist composer who's making a living as a musician, as we speak. Uh, so uh, yeah, uh, I uh, not as accomplished a, a player in my various instruments as as they were, but uh, when I discovered, uh, I mean, and I don't. You know, don't play in public. But when I discovered that the, the Tokutomi uh, had earned money when he was in, in college as a as, as a guitarist, um, then I, I started bringing guitars to uh, whenever he was visiting, so the two of us could uh, could play. And it turns out uh, that his his music is actually. I mean, he, he likes jazz and whatnot, but the music that he plays is bluegrass. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a whole Japanese bluegrass, uh, uh, I don't know what to 
call it, group of interest in, in Japan. And if you want to see something funny, I guess the Briar Gallery has a link to it. I hope it still works. Um, there are some YouTube things of uh, Japanese playing and singing bluegrass music, which is quite a trip, <laughs> as we used to say. Togu plays mandolin. Um, and then I've also, I, I, I actually, uh, when I visited Teddy and Meta, I've, I've, I've played, played guitar, even though Teddy doesn't play, he loves music. So, so it's been one of the ways that I've had fun with, uh, with pipe makers. There is a lot of stuff on uh, on Tom's website, and it's briargallery.com. Go on there, look at some absolutely gorgeous pipes, some uh, uh, some great writing. There's a ton of stuff on there to poke around and learn all about what we've just talked about. Yeah, thanks, Brian. A lot of that, that material, as I say, has developed out of conversations with uh, this uh, online uh, discussions with, with Sykes and... Um, uh, there are a couple of uh, articles that I've written about Tokutomi and Teddy that, that I've reproduced uh, on the website. So it I, it was launched not not as a commercial site where I'm trying to sell stuff, but but really as an educational site where I could air some of the uh, information and, and analysis and thoughts about about these guys um, who I think deserve uh, more attention from people generally, not just pipe smokers, but uh, because one of the things about their pipes, by the way, is that you don't, you know, you, it, the ultimate appreciation is also smoking them because they're, they're made, you know, they're craft, they're supposed to be smoked, but uh, there's so much else to appreciate about them. I mean, I've shown them to, shown various pipes to people who don't smoke at all, and, and you know, they're quite lovely things just to hold in your hand. And it's like a little piece of, I've treated them as a sort of sculpture for the hand, and have learned a lot about about art and uh, aesthetics and so forth by holding these silly little things. <laughs> I mean, there's pieces of wood in my hand, and see, there's so much craftsmanship and, and uh, aesthetic sense. And, uh, and Tokutomi is especially uh, especially unusual because uh, it's uh, the Japanese aesthetic is simply put is uh, tolerate asymmetry much more has a different approach to asymmetrical. Forms than do the uh, do the Japanese, and it it is fascinating to, to see Toku doing riffs on Teddy's pipes, uh, and Teddy doing riffs on Toku's pipes, <laughs> and as as asymmetrical in a way as some of Teddy's stuff can do. And and before him, I mean, Bo used to experiment with this stuff. You have Prebenholm years ago, just kind of really just messing around with different shapes and whatnot. But there's a whole different feeling to their approach to asymmetry, which I discuss on the web. And and Tokutomi's and Goto, uh, who are you know, just saturated in this other uh, whole approach to what an artist is doing and and uh, uh, what what is beautiful and uh, uh, what is natural. I mean, the Japanese have a whole other sense of, of what... Uh, you see, nature it can be put very simply in one aspect. For the for the Japanese, nature is by definition sort of messy or incomplete, and uh, the Japanese traditionally don't have any problems with flaws in the briar because flaws are what, what we call flaws. They would say, well, that's that's part of the pipe. You know, that's part of the natural object. If you get away, if you take out 
the flaws, you're making it man-made by definition. Because um, whereas you know the whole thrust of a lot of Danish pipe making aesthetic in the past 20, 30 years, 40 years, has been perfect grain, no spots, you know, <laughs> and uh, regular shapes and count the oh, the, you know, the grain looks like it's been painted on is has always been a, a mark of some uh, distinction. Uh, to the you know, Toku stuff doesn't look painted on, and actually neither does Teddy's. Because Teddy's approach to green as well is much more natural and supple than than many Danish pipe makers. On the other hand, and this is what's sort of fascinating, you know, Teddy will sort of look at me wistfully when I start talking about the Japanese toleration for flaws. And when I, well, he's built his whole life trying to find the perfect briar that has no flaws, and that's part of what makes his pipes beautiful. You know, that's part of the aesthetic in his mind is trying to get that that perfect grain. And uh, if he comes down to something, no matter how, you know, if suddenly a flaw appears in a briar, he, he will sandblast it, no matter how beautiful the pipe's shape might be. And uh, this is another thing that's fascinating to me. I mean, there's no right and wrong about this. That's part of Teddy's aesthetic is that it's got to be perfect. Whereas I can also be completely sympathetic with the Japanese notion that, uh, Oh, don't take the flaw out. Don't, don't, don't take that little bump of um, of uh, uh, plateau off because that's that's part of what makes it natural. You know? <laughs> and, so, and so you work around it rather than try to get rid of it. And if you think about it, that's a, that's a beautiful, you know, another kind of metaphor for East versus West, right? Uh, West has tried tries to carve, dominate everything, and the Eastern philosophies tend to be more softer and accepting of. I need to move to Japan because then I'd have the absolutely perfect appearance and physique because I'm all natural <laughs> with bumps exactly. and flaws. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, and, uh, but being between, you know, being a, a, a mediator or trying to be a mediator between these things, that is to say, to understand both sides and, and see how they interact and whatnot, um, I, uh, it, it is, uh, also a little, you know, you start feeling a little schizophrenic because on the one hand this and on the one hand entirely something else, you know. <laughs> so I can both fully understand, and I must say it's always a little easier for me to sink without any problem into a Teddy composition. And in, in the days when I was learning about Toku stuff, it was always usually a little more difficult for me to feel comfortable with it. Uh, the European pipes will always, it, 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 no matter how asymmetrical and wobbly it might be in a certain way, it always comes back to a, a resting place. There's always a kind of a sense of, uh, of, of stability, ultimate stability. And I began to really understand Toku's, Toku's stuff when I realized that to a Japanese, it, uh, excuse me, a shape doesn't have to have a resting place, a stopping place. In fact, the line is constantly moving. The shape is constantly... Some of Toku's pipes, certain lines, when you begin looking at it, it looks like the damn thing's falling apart. They're flowing away from each other. But then you realize it, 
it's not flowing away, it's like circling around. And so your eye will constantly be moving and it'll never stop because there's no stopping point. This flows into that, this goes off in this direction, but then, oh, it does come back over here if, if I stick with it long enough. You know? so, it's a, so I would then come to appreciate a toku composition and really enjoy it, but it always required, because I'm not, I'm not from the East, I'm from the West, it always requires just a little more effort to uh, uh, let myself get into it, uh, to go with the flow, as we used to say. <laughs> Tom, we'll uh, wrap this up with the fast five final questions, and it's time for you to go with the flow of this. There's no right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your <laughs> mind. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. What is your favorite pipe? Uh, probably a um, Teddy's Ramses, which is a, a Ramses riding an elephant, which is a, a kind of a, a Teddy, the closest come thing he's come to a, a riff on. Well, he's doing a riff both on Tokutomi and on Bo, <laughs> and the result is, is just marvelous. And it's, pictures are on my website. <laughs> And what is your favorite tobacco? Peter Stockerby's Kentucky Nougat. It's the only thing I smoke, I'm afraid. <laughs> it does have more taste than truth, and it's milder than truth. So, I, so I've, I've not milder. It's more interesting than truth. So I, I have moved a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite drink? Orange juice. Perfect. Sorry, I've... I've I... <laughs> Uh, when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Music. And we know you're all we know you're all over the place on music. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. There, there's uh, everything from, uh, from from classical to uh, '60s rock. And uh, the final question is going to be the toughest for you, but is there a, a particularly favorite pipe smoking related memory that we haven't talked about? Yeah, but it's a little bit, it's sort of, it's a little childish. <laughs> what pops into my mind is uh, one uh, the one Christmas that I, I was fortunate enough to, to be with Teddy and Meta in Denmark. And uh, Teddy did a, a bunch of, his first riff on Toku after he first met me, and uh uh, when, when he then showed up in, in Chicago, I'd seen him in, in Newark. He showed up in Chicago. He had made some some Star Trek pipes, <laughs> <laughs> including one sort of mushroom that he called Enterprise, and there was a Klingon and a and and uh, uh, some very things. Anyhow, so uh, there were pictures of this where we were smoking, and I, I suddenly we started having a, a Star Wars, uh, I mean a, a Star Trek fight. Enterprise was floating around attacking him, and I think he was defending himself with the Klingon. I can't remember. I told you it was. And Meta just looked at us and said, "Oh, oh, children, oh, boys." So you, so you two grown men were playing out scenes from Star Trek with Teddy Knudsen handmade pipes. Exactly. Exactly. Is that silly enough? And, and I'm going to guess you were probably in a diner. No, no, we we were. This was around their Christmas tree. Oh, okay. And sometime, sometime after the, 
after we'd watched uh, there's a, a classic. Uh, well, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, and um, no, it it, it was um, uh, we we were we were around around the Christmas tree and quite, uh, and we were also at that point we were both in our late sixties. So, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I will say, Tom, thank you very much for joining us. I think, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in Chicago. Absolutely, Brian. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. Do you need a reliable source for ordering pipes and tobacco? Do you find it difficult to get your favorite blends outside of the U.S.? Fournoggins.com stocks all of your favorite pipes and tobaccos and ships all over the world. All forms of payment are accepted and orders are processed the same day. There are no worries when ordering from Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com is your source for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. We ship in the U.S. and international with no worries. Fournoggins.com for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. This is Internet Radio. Well, how'd you like that? You know, I'm either uh, stupid or I really like being around smart people. Um, could be a combination of both, but I, you know, Tom and I have talked in person, and to hear him talk about a pipe from a uh, from a scholarly, academic point of view is absolutely wonderful. Do check out his website. All right, for music, um, Dino. Rap, Dino again recommended this song and um, Scott Thiele might find it interesting talking about uh, Tokotomi playing the mandolin I thought it was proper to have a uh, mandolin player so this is called uh, The Lighthouse Tales and uh, it features a, a really good mandolin player and a, a bass player who makes pipes Everything to me 
course Chris Thiele on uh, mandolin that's old Nickel Creek going back to when Scott was still playing with the band uh check out Chris coming up on Prairie Home Companion he's taking over soon three little words you got mail in the mailbag although he did not write in first John Seiler still gets the honor of the first position so he writes hi Brian I have only had a few Dunhill pipes in my collection and none of them had the inner tube uh, the interview with Rolando was very enjoyable. I hope the future here is not like the past 
there when there was a scarcity of tobacco. Uh, music, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Albert King, Pride and Joy, great song. Uh, there's a video on YouTube with them doing Born Under a Bad Sign, one of the guitar pieces I learned. Well, maybe. Uh, rant, I agree. Just too many people throwing around screwy abbreviations without knowing what they are talking about. No need associating tobacco with drugs. Nice show. Uh, John, you realize you abbreviated Stevie Ray Vaughan to SRV? Uh, anyway, Dino writes... Uh, he was worried about where John was. <laughs> anyway, Dino wrote, uh, Hola, Senor Brian. Uh, the conversation with Rolando was wonderfully interesting. Uh, SRV and Albert King, an incredible meeting. I, too, am easily annoyed by some of the Twitter-speak language shortcuts and in vogue epith- <laughs> in our community. Uh, my pet peeves include the use of backy in reviewers writing about McClellan's ketchup, ack, Please stop Dino. Yeah, I also don't like people saying uh, stogie or go out and uh, smoke a stick when talking about cigars. (laughs) Anyway, and uh, Dan writes, interesting discussion on the Dunhill inner tube. The inner tube is not for me. I enjoyed the discussion of pipes with Rolando. Very enjoyable, and the rant was enjoyable, too. I I don't know of anybody that really uses the Dunhill inner tube or likes the Dunhill inner tube except for Dunhill. Uh, And then going back a couple of weeks, George Edmondson writes in, Brian, interesting show as always. I do have a couple of questions about cellaring. When you open a jar, do you simply screw the top back on again? And if so, does it pop again? Or do you not open a jar unless you intend to smoke all the contents fairly quickly? Thanks, George. All right, a couple of things. One, for aging, I only, I fill the jar up all the way to the top and then tighten it down. And that's it. Uh, When I got back from Mexico this weekend, I went back to all those jars that I packed up a couple of weeks ago and tightened them down again, twisted them down again. Uh, When I open a jar, I open a jar with the intent that that jar is going to be smoked. It is no longer going to be for aging and storing. It is to be smoked out of. So that's why the biggest jars that I use only hold about eight, nine ounces of tobacco in them. Uh, eight, nine ounces of one blend for me in the, in particular might be about, uh, two, three months. So in between bowls, I'll just tighten the lid back down, but I'm not tightening down for aging. I'm just tightening it down for storage. Uh, I don't intend for it to pop again. And again, if I'm going to reuse that jar, I'm going to reuse it for maybe the same tobacco. I'm going to buy a brand new lid and then just use the same ring again. Alright, got any questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com or post it on the Pipes Magazine radio show page on pipesmagazine.com and in just a minute, rant time! I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. Since 1990, Cornell & Deal has been producing high-quality pipe tobacco expertly blended by hand using time-honored methods, unique recipes, and no small amount of innovation. One example of such innovation is our bestseller, Autumn Evening. We start with whole leaf red Virginia and strip the stems by hand. The tobacco is then cut into ribbons and cooked for two days according to our unique recipe to create our special red Virginia Cavendish. Then we infuse the tobacco while it's still hot with our secret flavoring to achieve the sublime sweetness, 
deep flavor and delightful aroma that makes autumn evening so well loved by our loyal customers and everyone around them as they enjoy this very special blend. Cornell and Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. It's a labor of love. Contact your local or online retailer for information. just take this time to comment on the sad state of affairs of my friends on Facebook. (laughs) Now, here's what happened. On Thursday, when I was coming home, I posted a picture of my three-liter bottle of tequila. I waited about uh, 48 hours, and then on Saturday morning, I went and did my early voting, because I'm going to be gone for actual primary day, and I posted a picture of my little I Voted sticker on one of my Walt Disney uh, shirts. Now, in the 48 hours of posting the bottle, of, the picture of the bottle of tequila, I had about 70 likes and about 8 or 9 comments on it. Following that, in 48 hours of posting that I voted a civil right that we as Americans must exercise, I had a total of 18 likes and one comment. So, I'm not saying this is a sad state of affairs for our country. I'm saying that it's a sad state of affairs for my friends that they're more excited over a 3-liter bottle of tequila than they are over somebody voting in their primary election. Um, And now that I think about it, you know what? I'd rather have the three-liter bottle of tequila than have some of the... and have the candidate choices. Never mind, I'm not going to get into political stuff. But I will say one thing. I bet I was the only person on Facebook that posted a three-liter bottle of tequila picture in the past... 24 to 48 hours, and I bet there's a lot of people that posted pictures of voting. So maybe the commentary is we're tired of hearing about this upcoming election, and we would rather drink a three liter bottle of cheap tequila, which, by the way, the bottle is really pretty. Um, the tequila is not ever going to be opened or drank because it would last a lifetime for me here at home. All right, don't forget JDRF auctions coming up shortly, about two weeks away. If you have anything that you'd like to donate, uh, please email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, and we'll get those on. Watch for those. If you'd like to advertise on the Pipes Magazine radio show, contact Kevin Godby at pipesmagazine.com. I want to thank Tom for spending so much time with me and uh, enlightening us. I want to thank you all for tuning in. And until next time, about the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather happy trails to the moon till we meet
On March 15th in Rome, you get stabbed in the back. In the United States of America, on April 15th, you get it in the... <laughs>